the end goal is, is about building a movement really and changing the political narrative around this industry and, and what it's doing and kind of breaking its political stranglehold on our democracy. Welcome to the final show in the Climate Solutions mini-series. This week I come bearing great news. The climate movement is finally getting its act together. After many years of failed strategies, including endorsing the idea of carbon trading developed by financial speculators and corporations like BP, large environmental NGOs entering into partnerships with profit-driven corporations, and focusing on a project of lifestyle change in a world driven by economic growth and hyper-consumption. The climate movement is now going for the jugular and coalescing around the project of encouraging institutions around the globe to move their money out of fossil fuel investments. It's called divestment, and this powerful economic tool has been decisive in earlier struggles, such as bringing an end to apartheid in South Africa in the 1980s. The logic underpinning the fossil fuel divestment movement is simple. If we want to avoid the worst aspects of climate change, we need to keep about 80% of known fossil fuel reserves in the ground. That means that the value of fossil fuel companies is artificially inflated and presents a risk to the financial system as a whole. The Carbon Tracker Initiative, who, along with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has been responsible for providing the evidence base for this initiative, calculates that there is, in effect, a carbon bubble of $6 trillion in the financial system waiting to burst. The Bank of England is taking this idea seriously, with the bank's governor, Mark Carney, telling the World Bank in October last year that the vast majority of reserves are unburnable. In December, the bank announced it was widening and deepening its inquiry into the risk posed to the financial system by what could become stranded assets of coal, oil and extreme fossil fuels that need to be kept in the ground. The Smith School at Oxford University has described the campaign as the fastest growing divestment movement in history. And this month, the Guardian newspaper came out as a supporter of the campaign, launching its own push for the Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to divest from fossil fuels. In this programme, we speak to some of the activists involved in the campaign in the UK to see what it looks like on the ground. We hear about the campaign wins, the creative direct action tactics employed, the diverse constituencies involved, the options for reinvesting in positive alternatives, and the parallel campaign for a cultural boycott. Finally, we ask, can this movement win where the UN climate talks failed? Here's Daniel Pafford, 350.org's UK investment campaigner, to give an overview of what's going on in this country. The divestment movement in the UK is growing rapidly every day. It's expanded at an incredible speed. And every few weeks, new campaigns are popping up all over the country. And as coordinator for 350, I'm constantly getting emails from new people who are really interested in um, setting up campaigns where they are or um, getting involved in the divestment movement um, in some way. The student campaign has really taken off, the faith campaign is growing, and obviously with The Guardian launching its own 
divestment campaign against the Wellcome Trust, I think divestment is really becoming a mainstream issue in the UK. The divestment campaign started within universities and with you know students getting active, and there's such a powerful narrative around um, university divestment and you know education and, and what's the point in in teaching students. Uh, you know, training students up for a future that they might not even have or a future that is going to be, you know, so hugely different. So there's a really powerful narrative around around the university sector. But what's really important is is that this has now moved to other areas and the faith, um, the faith campaign is, is a really important part just because of the moral, you know, kind of the, the moral authority of the church. And that's been a really powerful campaign. Ditto in the health sector that, um, you know, we trust doctors, we trust health professionals. So them speaking out on divestment has been really important. And the local government campaign, which is really taking off, is is a really powerful narrative as well, because this is about public money and this is about the democratic structures we have at a local level. And it's a way for people everywhere to go to their you know, local local representatives and say, hey, you know, particularly as local government, it's going to be picking up so many of the pieces for the effects of climate change there's also um, a personal divestment campaign for Move Your Money, encouraging individuals to divest themselves and, and put pressure on banks to do the same. And Share Action do lots of work around pensions and getting people to pressure pensions. And so this really is a kind of multi, multi-pronged approach. And uh, that's really exciting. I think there are a series of milestones for the campaign. The most obvious ones are the divestment wins that we're starting to really clock up. Um, Glasgow University was the first university in Europe uh, to commit to divestment, um, and that was the result of a really powerful student campaign, which is a milestone in itself. You know, the number of of kind of autonomous and empowering and effective campaigns that that are growing. Um, we've seen a couple of divestment wins from the local government sector, Oxford leading the way, and then Bristol um, as a result of pressure from local people. In the kind of faith sector, the Quakers were the first denomination to commit to divest. As soon as it was suggested, they came straight out and got their money out of fossil fuels, and we're seeing churches around the country um, divesting themselves and increasingly putting pressure on the Methodists and the Church of England. Uh, so hopefully we'll have something good to report there soon. Um, in terms of the health community, we had a really big um, milestone with the British Medical Association, which is the you know the union that represents all doctors in this country. And when they decided to divest last summer, that was a really important stand taken by the health community for action on climate change. The divestment movement in the UK is really part of a global effort. There's hundreds of campaigns all over the world. I think the UK plays an important role, partly because of the significance of London as a financial centre. I also think we play quite an important role in how the campaign works is a really inspiring example of collaboration between different organisations who've got their you know, sector-specific knowledge really working together to create a movement that is more than the sum of its parts. So yeah, I think, I think the UK is a really ex- inspiring example of how divestment campaigns can work. Daniel Pafford, 350.org's UK divestment campaigner. The movement for pressuring institutions to withdraw their money from fossil fuel investments was started by students on campuses across the US. Here's Miriam Wilson, the fossil free campaign coordinator at People and Planet, on why the student movement is so important, its potential impact, campaigning strategy, and the wins it's had so far. 
for me, the student movement has been what's really driven the divestment movement. It started there and it's snowballed, really. So we've seen how the student movement has led to this more mainstream movement, which is really building power against the fossil fuel industry and changing the narrative, I think, as well on climate change, which up until a few years ago hasn't really been as focused on the fossil fuel industry as it perhaps should have been. Universities have endowment funds, which are kind of like their savings account. And in the US, the endowment funds tend to be much bigger, like in the billions of dollars. In the UK, endowment funds are smaller, but UK universities still invest an estimated £5.2 billion in fossil fuel companies. So there's a lot of potential for leverage there. And then secondly, universities and colleges support the fossil fuel industry in other ways through their research and their careers links with the industry. So educational institutions provide a really important space in which to kind of discuss these issues and confront them in kind of a community context and challenge these institutions on the links they have. And also as as institutions which are supposedly kind of shaping our future leaders and learners and and kind of talking and discussing and learning about the challenges of the future I think higher education institutions are really important as as a kind of talking ground for these kind of issues. The fossil free campaign was launched here by People and Planet um, which is the UK's largest student campaigning network for world poverty, human rights and the environment and that kind of started a year and a half ago, we launched with a, a European-wide tour with Bill McKibben from 350.org um, in October 2013. And since then, it's just progressed so quickly. So we now have nearly 60 campuses which are engaged um, with the Fossil Free campaign. We've got over 25,000 students involved in the campaign. That's just in the UK alone. Um, obviously, in the US, it started a few years before you know, we've got hundreds of campaigns across the US. It's gone over to um, across Europe, Australia, New Zealand, so South Africa, like it's really becoming a, a much more of a global movement now. Our first successes in the university context came um, last summer in August when the University of London SOAS agreed to freeze any new investments in the fossil fuel industry. And then in October of last year, the University of Glasgow became the first European university to commit to divest from fossil fuels, which is a pretty big win considering it's one of the larger endowments in the UK. It's a £129 million endowment fund, about 18, 19 million invested in fossil fuels. And then in February, the University of Bedfordshire put a policy in place to commit not to invest in fossil fuels in the future. So we've had sort of three wins in just a year and a half and more successes on the horizon. We're expecting decisions from Edinburgh University and Oxford is considering divestment and we're expecting a decision from them in May. The wins are already coming in and we're expecting them to continue to increase in momentum over the coming months. So basic steps will be to start out with building a team and building support on campus and raising awareness on campus. Things like petitioning and kind of organising events and debates and that kind of thing. And then getting passing support 
through the student union and getting more kind of formal procedures in place, meeting with the university, lobbying them, negotiating with decision makers, kind of taking taking it up the levels within the university. At that point, the university is either going to shut you out or give you a no, or they will consider what you're saying. And that's where you, you kind of need to start thinking about tactics. So once you've built support on campus, it's going to be either using that to kind of organise stunts and protests, which encourage the university to divest, or if you're getting more of a negative response from the university, which some students have, then it's shaking up the tactics to, to put it back on the agenda. So there have been some really interesting examples of that. At the University of East Anglia, the university was refusing to meet with students. So one tactic they chose was to do a communications blockade. So they jammed the phone lines and the online like social media sites of the university for a few hours to ask why the university wasn't meeting with students about this issue. And they got their meeting the next day with the university and have been able to kind of continue to engage with the university since then. Um, at UCL, University College London, the students had, again, been shut out by the university. The university was refusing to engage. So they've tried a few quite interesting tactics. They've had like a die-in outside the meeting of the finance managers, lying down, blocking the entrance to the to the building and pretending to be dead and having like their university managers clambering over their, 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 their students to get inside. They've also had an oil orgy where they poured themselves in oil and had a love-in on Valentine's Day outside one of the meetings, dressing up as the provost of the university who's supposedly in bed with the fossil fuel industry. But more recently, they've kind of switched up the tactics and gone from a celebratory approach for the university, starting to reconsider divestment and take it more seriously. So they've had cheerleaders outside meetings and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of really varied and creative tactics involved in getting the university to kind of pay attention. In principle, divestment is quite simple. It's basically an instruction to your fund manager to um, move investments from one uh, from certain companies and put that money elsewhere. Um, it should be as simple as the click of a button, but in practice, it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, especially just because universities are more are quite slow-moving, conservative institutions, and they have a, what's called a fiduciary responsibility. Um, to make sure that they have a good return on their investments. So there are clean energy alternatives, and there's a movement in the US called Divest Invest, which is kind of encouraging universities who do divest to reinvest into things like renewable energy and climate solutions. But we think it's really important that universities don't just divest from fossil fuels and move that money into something else, which is really harmful, like arms or tobacco it's important that they reinvest their money in ethical ways. Divestment campaigns that are running in the context of a university which has these really strong ties, they definitely do have a, a bigger challenge to face. It's really widespread. There are lo so many universities across the UK that have really strong ties. Places like Aberdeen, for example, is like kind of a city that's found a lot of its wealth through the oil industry. So that's a difficult context in which to campaign. It's a lot less straightforward, but I think it's also something that's really important to discuss because universities should be researching for the public good and researching for not just being contractors for the private sector, but actually researching on what the world needs. And at the moment, 
we don't need more fossil fuels, we need solutions. So that's a really big aspect of the campaign as well, looking at what, where universities are getting their research funding from, what kind of things they're researching, and how we can kind of shift the conversation on research and encourage more kind of ethical research criteria. Last week, a group of former students from Oxford University occupied one of the university buildings in a protest at the postponement of the decision about whether or not to divest. Daniel Pafford was one of those involved in the occupation. Here she shares her thoughts on how it went, why it's important and the prospects for a successful outcome. The Oxford occupation on Monday was really, really great. Um, it's been a been a few years since I occupied the Clarendon building, <laughs> so it was nice to be back. <laughs> um, but the the campaign there has been really interesting because you know the whole process is absolutely opaque, and it's been impossible to find out from the university even when the meetings are happening, what the recommendations that are going to these meetings are. So this is a really intransparent process and it's been very difficult for the students to even find out what's been going on at all. Obviously, Oxford is such an interesting target for us because of its, you know, its reputation, as well as the fact that some of, you know, world leading work on both climate change and stranded assets and the financial implications of investing in fossil fuels um, is coming out of their walls. So they're a really, really interesting target. And the decision that's you know, that was meant to happen this week has really been the culmination of, you know, 18 months of incredible work by the really effective student campaign there. And they've built support across the students, they've built support from staff, they've built support from alumni, and there's an increasingly powerful voice calling for change. Um, And now the, you know, now the decision has been pushed back until May, I think, in some ways, that's a good thing, because it gives us more time to build even more pressure, um, and make the university feel that, you know, feel that pressure to act and they know that the eyes are on them. So I'm confident that we will get some progress from from the May decision. We know they have this enormous endowment. It's the biggest biggest in the country and represents about 41% of, you know, the total of endowments across the country. So they've got this huge amount of money and we don't know how much of that is in fossil fuels. What we can be certain of is it will be millions of pounds because actually, unless you're actively trying to avoid fossil fuels, they make up such a huge part of, you know, the kind of the FTSE 100 and the the stock exchange. So they will have an enormous amount of money invested in the fossil fuel companies. There's also all sorts of other ties in terms of sponsorship and, you know, research being sponsored by the fossil fuel industry. And yeah, they're they're really in bed with the fossil fuel companies. So the students lobbied for the investment committee to look into divestment and that got kind of handed to the socially responsible investment committee which which ran a consultation which the students inputted into and there was you know kind of university-wide consultation on 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 what people thought about divestment and so this recommendation from the socially responsible investment committee which you know we've no idea what that recommendation is because the students haven't been able to see it we're led to believe it's very closely based on what the students were asking for. And so that recommendation has gone you know, through all of the kind of various councils of the university. And right now it's at the highest level of, of decision making, which is the general council. And that's the top decision making body in the university. Um, and I think it's kind of the first or second time that anything from the socially responsible investment committee has ever got that high, you know, ever got to that level of decision making. 
so we're now we're now at the final stage you know it's it's hard to say we know that in that group there are people who are very strongly pro and there are people who are very strongly against so you know as a campaign and the students we just need to make sure that over the next couple of months we do as much as we can to keep the pressure on those decision makers and keep the noise high um so that they feel like they have to vote with their students rather than the fossil fuel industry so how far are students prepared to go to get their universities to divest from fossil fuels miriam again i think we've seen already how far students are willing to go on fossil fuel divestment but in the us again they're a few a few years ahead so they're really building on nonviolent direct action over the coming months and um, students at harvard have already held sit-ins and had arrests over the university uh, refusing to divest and you know they're, they're taking the university to court over its fossil fuel investments they're suing the university over its fossil fuel investments so there's a lot of potential especially over the coming months and um, we're going to see a lot more build-up of non-violent direct action around divestment and I think yeah students are prepared to go pretty far for this movement especially considering they have such a stake in in the future the campaign to get local councils to divest from fossil fuels is one everyone can get involved in. Here's Giotz Naram, co-founder of the recently established Community Reinvest Consultancy, on the risk posed to local councils by fossil fuel investments and the alternatives that exist for reinvesting that money in positive alternatives such as renewable energy. This broadly two risks. There's financial risk and then there's environmental and social risk. The main financial risk comes from uh, something called a carbon bubble. It's widely acknowledged that at least 70% of known fossil fuel reserves have to stay in the ground if we're going to limit global warming to two degrees. And this doesn't even account for like unidentified fossil fuel reserves. But current share prices of uh, you know fossil fuel investments don't account for the fact that 70% needs to stay in the ground. So share prices are inflated, but there'll come a point when the stock market realizes that there's a bubble growing. And at that point, the bubble will burst. I mean, we've seen this with the dot-com crash and the property crash. And many analysts say that the next global economic crash could very well come from the carbon bubble bursting. And at that point, when the bubble bursts, any local authorities whose pension funds are invested in fossil fuels will just lose out millions and billions and then their employees will lose out and, you know, will be in a very dire situation. So that's like a huge risk that local authorities are exposing themselves to by continuing to invest in fossil fuels. But there's also like a wider societal risk. Um, you know, our climate is changing and the UK energy system is just not prepared. It's not resilient. And fossil fuels plays a huge part in our economic system, which, you know, has given us gross inequalities, gross youth unemployment, mental illness, physical illness, a lot of anxiety due to precarious work. So these are like huge societal and, you know, in some extent quantify risk as well, that investing in fossil fuels, uh, local authorities are exposing not just themselves and their employees, but who they're accountable to, like their local people and wider society. So, yeah, I think those are the two broad risks. But I'd like to say, in addition to risk, local authorities have to think about their responsibilities as well. 
they are a very important civic institution that have a democratic duty to not just protect themselves from risk, but to invest positively for their people. And investing in fossil fuels definitely doesn't do that. And they also have climate policies, which they've publicly committed to. And investing in fossil fuels directly contradicts their climate policies. If you think about it, on one hand, they're investing in fossil fuels. And on the other hand, they're investing in trying to mitigate the impact of fossil fuels. So it's it's a little bit absurd, really. We actually think that local authorities don't realize how much they've invested in fossil fuels because they've outsourced most of their decision making to financial firms who we believe are not giving them accurate advice. And what we're trying to do with 350 and platform and what local campaigners have already started to do is gather information on what local authorities have invested in and hold that up for scrutiny. And by doing so, that's like a very important step campaigners take. And as, you know, the movement grows, and this is very much a grassroots movement, there'll be more and more pressure on local authorities to not just divest, but actually also reinvest positively. Oxford City Council and Bristol City Council have shown amazing leadership by publicly announcing that they will divest and yeah, that's really amazing. And we call upon other councils to do the same. There are councils which may not have publicly committed to divestment, but are showing leadership by positively reinvesting, like Lancashire County Council have invested 12 million from their pension funds into Westmill Solar Cooperative, which is UK's largest community-owned solar farm. So even though Lancashire haven't said publicly they're divesting, they're positively reinvesting, which is the other side. So certainly there are councils doing this, which is amazing, and more and more councils just have to follow suit, really. There are quite a few positive reinvestment options. So I already mentioned um, Lancashire County Council who've invested in Westmill Solar Cooperative and their investors are being paid back according to their original terms. The project is generating 4.8 gigawatts, which is quite a large amount of solar electricity, and they have enough surplus earnings to invest in further community projects and smaller demand management. So that's an incredibly inspiring example of positive reinvestment. I think a couple of weeks ago, Strathclyde Pension Fund in Scotland announced that they will invest 10 million in community projects backed by the Green Investment Bank. So that's another excellent example. You've got the Environmental Agencies Pension Fund, which even though it's not completely fossil free, takes a very active role in investing ethically. And they're actually an outperformer. So uh, local government pension schemes have earned an average like a 2.5 return rate in the last year and Environmental Agencies Pension Fund has earned double of that. So that's like an excellent example of like what positive reinvestment can also do in financial terms. And you also have big investor giants like BlackRock uh, who are developing an index tracked low commission fossil free fund. And so that's another option. We at Community Reinvest don't actually favor investments in uh, funds like BlackRock because that still keeps control in corporates and it's not a job-rich investment option as investing in community energy is, for example. Nevertheless, that would be an important stepping stone to complete divestment. 
our main theory of change is that we need to link economic development with environmental and social benefits. And we strongly believe that the current energy system in the UK is just simply not fit for purpose on many counts like environmental, social and financial as well. So we need to build a new energy system. And that's one of the things that we are very passionate about. When we think about countries that have more resilient systems than the UK, like Denmark and Germany, for example, and Denmark and Germany are world leaders in wind and solar technology as well. And the, the transformation of the energy systems in both these countries were driven from bottom up. It's community groups working in collaboration with local authorities that has delivered a fit for purpose energy system in Denmark and Germany. And we need to learn from them and do the same in the UK. And we need our local authorities to realize they are important civic institutions, that they need to show leadership and support the sorts of projects, such as community-owned renewable energy projects that will deliver a much more resilient energy system. And also, community-owned energy system will take away control from corporates and make an energy system more democratic and we're very passionate and believe energy justice and democracy is very, very important. And uh, community projects also have the potential to provide good quality jobs, especially for young people, tackling you know, youth unemployment, which is a big problem here. So on many fronts, we feel that investing in community energy, particularly local authorities, investing in community energy makes a lot of sense. It's really exciting, the offshore wind generation potential the UK have. But we have to be really careful if the current big six take control of the offshore wind potential, then we are simply replicating the current energy system where offshore wind plays a small part. Uh, but we still have the inequalities and problems that are associated with the energy system. If local authorities take a very active role in partnerships with community groups to invest, and maybe even in partnership with the national government to invest in an offshore wind farm, that would be very exciting. And that would also open up the possibility of earmarking many of the profits that are generated to be positively reinvested not dissimilar to what Norway did with its oil wealth. And certainly there are organisations doing research into how this might work, for example, Platform London and New Economics Foundation. So it's a really exciting opportunity that UK's offshore wind generation potential throws up, but we have to be very, very careful that there's democratic control of offshore wind. There are basically two financial institutions that give advice to local authorities of where they should invest. That's Capita and Arling Close. And Capita actually advise over 70% of local authorities and they have this monopoly. And their advice is not taking into account financial and climate risks like carbon bubble. Um, and they don't offer advice on the positive reinvestment landscape they don't understand really important investment landscapes like community energy. So basically, local authorities are not getting complete or accurate advice. And we think that's one of the key reasons they're not divesting. And campaign pressure will expose this. And I think that will really help the divestment momentum. 
I mean, why have councils outsourced decision making? And that's reflective of this greater trend of like privatization of public services. And they haven't really considered whether the advice they're getting is impartial and accurate. And councils need to realize they are civic institutions. They're Only duty is not about maximising return to shareholders. They have a democratic duty and therefore they need to take a more active role in managing their investments. And so, yeah, definitely councils need to take back control. And that's in the best interest of themselves, their employees and wider public. Another milestone in the campaign in the UK came recently when the London Assembly voted overwhelmingly in favour of the Greater London Authority divesting its £4.8 billion pension fund from fossil fuels. Danny picks up the story. The Divest London City Hall campaign has been really amazing. This is a totally new group, um, lots of new campaigners who have come together around divestment to put pressure on City Hall. And it's been a really, really successful campaign. And the win with the London Assembly a couple of weeks ago has been really brilliant. What was really exciting about that win is that we got lots of feedback from the London Assembly about how effectively they felt they'd been lobbied. (laughs) Um, Lots of the campaigners who'd been working with the Assembly members and working on the motion and then kind of putting pressure on, you know, the various Assembly members, you know, had really good feedback that, you know, this this is an effectively run campaign and, and Assembly members felt that, you know, they'd been approached not only by people from Divest London, but, um, you know, wider constituents who'd, um, who Divest London had kind of recruited to get involved and speak to their assembly members about the issue. So the London Assembly win is really, um, it's a really great step. And it's a really good example of how effective campaigning can work. It's going to be interesting to see how Boris responds to the motion. He has to respond in some form, although that can be in any, in any form he wants. So the London Assembly are the kind of democratic body, kind of Londoners' voice in City Hall, and they're there to kind of hold the mayor to account. But ultimately, he gets the final say. We've been led to believe by some of his advisers that because the mayor is very pro-fracking, he is unlikely to support it. But, you know, Divest London has their job cut out now to really make sure that, you know, the pressure is increased on the mayor both from the London Assembly decision and from, you know, Londoners and constituents, that he kind of votes the right way and goes with the London Assembly. I think it's going to be really important to make acting on this divestment decision a really key part in the um, 2016 mayoral elections and putting pressure on candidates as soon as we know who's been selected is going to be a key part of the campaign. In the campaign to end apartheid in South Africa, a cultural boycott played a big role alongside the campaign for divestment. Here too, activists and concerned citizens have been pushing for institutions in the cultural sector not to help with the normalisation of fossil fuel companies by accepting their sponsorship money. The campaign predates the call for divestment and has had significant wins of its own. Here's Mel Evans of Liberate Tate, whose book, Artwash, Big Oil and the Arts, is published by Pluto Press in April. It's really interesting to see how complementary the cultural sponsorship 
movement and the divestment from fossil fuels movement are working together because in a sense they're both working along this kind of complementary strategy of in order to evict fossil fuels from our culture we have to get rid of this social acceptance of them and some of the ways in which that social acceptance is built is through the arts but it's also through the sort of wider associations with the whole industry and that partly comes from finance so within the divestment movement people often talk about the stigmatization of the fossil fuel sector and so hand in hand the cultural boycott and the divestment movement are both playing these roles to stigmatize the industry as part of that wider movement to tackle climate change and to create a more ecologically and socially just world. Fossil fuel companies like BP and Shell have for about the past 20 years or so seen that they can gain a whole wealth of cultural capital through association with big cultural institutions like Tate or British Museum. They need this thing that the PR industry calls a social license to operate. So they need a way of ensuring that the people consuming their products are okay with the harm that they're causing while they extract their products from other parts of the world. And that social license is something that they gain through these positive associations with cultural institutions so that whether people visit those art galleries or museums or not, it's about that knowledge that their logos are stamped at the entranceways of the sort of nation's most loved cultural institutions. And that's what they benefit from. Um, And that's something that in my book, Artwash, I call artwash, an artwashing effect of... um, gaining this social acceptance from the arts. So gallery members, artists, activists have all kind of come together on this issue to take action in different ways. So artists have signed letters in the press calling on galleries to drop fossil fuel and oil sponsors. At the same time, art activist groups like Liberate Tate, BP or Not BP or Shell Out Sounds have all created interventions or performances. So they've taken these artworks that those groups have made and they've placed them inside the galleries and museums that accept money from oil sponsors. And in that way, they've kind of reflected the form of the cultural institution that they're calling on. So they're having a much sort of closer conversation with those galleries and institutions than you might have if it was a kind of protest outside the front door. You know, because a cultural institution doesn't stop at the door. It's about the visitors as well as the staff. It's about all the people who have a kind of stake in what goes on in those places, these public art galleries, these kind of representations of our lives and our histories and so on. And it's about people from within those networks and communities going inside and saying, actually, there's something going on here that we're not happy with, that we're not okay with, in the same way that tobacco sponsors or arms sponsors have been pushed out of galleries in the past. Um, We're now seeing people saying, actually, oil is no longer acceptable. We need to take oil out of our museums and galleries. There's been a massive upsurge over the past five years or so in creative interventions to challenge oil sponsorship of the arts in the UK and in other places around the world. And for the galleries and museums, that's not just been a kind of brief moment that they've been able to live through. It's really become a thorn in their side. It's not something that's easily gone away. And I think with each kind of increase and each intervention that's made, 
it becomes more and more difficult for them to continue trotting out the line that, oh, well, we've always taken this money, so we always will. Because, of course, they won't always will. There will be change on this subject at some point. It's just a matter of when that happens. And the faster the kind of temperature raises on this issue, as it seems to be doing, um, the sooner that change will come. In 2008, the Wildlife Photography of the Year exhibition that takes place at the Natural History Museum dropped Shell as a sponsor after the sort of clear incongruence between wildlife photography and an oil company that's caused oil disasters and devastated ecologies and habitats for wildlife all around the world, as well as, of course, human homes and human lives. We've also seen the Southbank Centre step away from Shell similarly. So they had the Shell Classic International Series, which at the end of 2013 was dropped. Um, and it's now simply the Classic International Series because it didn't seem fitting for an oil company to be branded at this event. And it was um, regularly accidentally host to the interventions of Shell Out Sounds Gorilla Choir that was a big part in shaping that, as well as comments made at Southbank Centre events by writers such as Margaret Atwood and others who were critical of the association between Shell and Southbank. So they're really significant gains and we're really hopeful that other institutions across London, the UK, Europe and the rest of the world will follow suit swiftly. Liberate Tate's been targeting the BP-Tate relationship specifically for just over five years now because we see this one as really symbolic of the whole issue. BP's been at Tate um, almost 25 years now. It's a deal that started the very end of the 80s, just began in 1990. Um, And even that in itself is telling of how oil sponsorship is becoming dated and outmoded. It's a particularly significant relationship because Tate is such an influential figure in the international art world. And so the kind of ethical standards that are set at Tate do hold influence over the ways in which other galleries make their decisions as well. And Tate does present itself in this very kind of progressive persona. It holds different events around arts and philosophy, has different exhibitions around art and the left. So the way in which Tate presents itself is very incongruous with the presence of BP, this corporate criminal that's been dragged through the courts in the US after the devastating impacts of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. So the particular relationship between BP and Tate is is very interesting not only for these reasons of this history but also because right now the chair of trustees at Tate is Lord John Brown who previously was CEO of BP for 12 years who's worked for BP since he was 18 for the majority of his working life so the relationship between BP and Tate is very very close and to us it seems that How would it be possible for staff within Tate who are unhappy about BP's presence in the gallery? As we know, there are many who who feel that way. How can they raise this issue? How can they have a a sort of fair discussion when the ex-chief executive of BP sits at the helm of the gallery? It must be a very stifling conditions to, to have this debate about this issue on the inside. So... That's the particular situation at Tate. And though there are, you know, other figures 
from oil and, and in BP who are peppered across other London galleries, such as Peter Mather, who's um, an honorary board of directors at the Royal Opera House, who's also the head of BP Europe. There are all these connections to big oil that across the board make it difficult to see how this conversation could really be given its due inside the gallery. At the same time, the relationship between BP and Tate isn't a sort of strongly financial one. Alongside platform and request initiative, Liberate Tate was recently able to see after having gone to the information commissioner to ask that they um, demand Tate reveal the amount of money it's received from BP and the information commissioner in January forced Tate to do so finally. And so we now know that from between 1990 and 2006, Tate received on average £224,000 from BP. Now this is a tiny, tiny amount of Tate's annual operating income. It's less than half a percentage. So in fact, Tate is getting more money from members than it is from oil sponsors. And that that reveals to us is that they're not necessary, they could let them go, and that this is more about a historical relationship that's gone out of date, gone stale, and needs to be let go, rather than any kind of financial need on the part of Tate. Tate has a number of policies around ethics, around um, its ambition to lead on sustainability and um, on addressing climate change as a public gallery. And all of these policies seem in direct contradiction with the presence of an oil sponsor. People have this idea that somehow BP or Shell are keeping the gallery doors open, but that's absolutely not the case. Tate. British Museum and the National Gallery, amongst others, all have agreements with the government that they will maintain free access to these public galleries. And that free access is tied to a huge chunk of public money that goes into those galleries and that comes directly from the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. So it's absolutely not the case that without BP's money, we wouldn't have public access to the gallery. It's a tiny amount of money. It's less than half a percentage of Tate's income. And the free access is maintained by this agreement with the government. It's nothing to do with the fossil fuel sponsors. I think we're, we're starting to see a massive shift on the way that the oil industry as a sector is perceived by the public, the ways in which sustainability has become much more mainstream. And with that, we also see a change in the way that people perceive the oil companies as part of the galleries. There's no specific polling that I've seen around the issue of oil sponsorship in particular. But one example is that in 2013 at the Tate Members AGM, over half the members present raised their hands to say that they were against oil sponsorship and against the presence of BP in the gallery. So that's a, that's a massive shift already. So we've seen creative and artist responses to oil sponsorship in Norway, in Canada, in Brazil um, and in the US, amongst other places. In Norway, there's been loads going on. There's different artist groups who've spoken out against stat oil sponsorship. One of the main festivals actually dropped stat oil as a sponsor. In Canada, a snowman was placed outside 
one of the museums that just as it started to to accept oil sponsorship. And in Brazil, outside the main modern art museum, an oil spill was uh, set up by artists um, in protest of Petrobras sponsorship. So similar tactics are being used on this issue, as well as a range of other um, sponsorship concerns. So in Australia, a lot has happened with a group called Generation Alpha around sponsorship by fracking gas companies in Australia. And there was a massive um, shift made by the group Boycott the Sydney Biennale, who were able to actually push controversial detention centre operator Transfield out of its sponsorship and association with the Sydney Biennale. So loads is going on at the moment where artists in different parts of the world are saying, hold on a second, we don't agree with the conditions of where we're making work, the situation in which our artworks are being placed. And actually we want to change that because the arts is this this public sphere um, in a very particular way and artists, visitors members of galleries all have a, a, a stake in in the kind of ethical conditions of those spaces and how that those public spaces are used and you can see a, a big rise going on all around the world to really take ownership of what the ethical standards are in these public spaces. The next couple of years are really important for oil sponsorship, creative interventions in the UK. The deal between BP and Tate's British Museum National Portrait Gallery and the Royal Opera House will come to an end at the end of 2016. And as we understand it, a decision will be made sometime over the next year or 18 months about whether that contract will be renewed. Now, of course, if it is, we'll keep at it. You know, we know that this is a, a campaign that hundreds, if not thousands of people are really committed to want to see this change. But we also see this time is really crucial to really draw as much of the public into the conversation as possible because we've seen that the more people look into this issue, they the more strongly that they seem to feel that this, this shouldn't continue and a change should happen now. And we hope to really raise the temperature on that before any new contract is signed. So what's divestment about ultimately? Is it about crippling financially those corporations whose very business models are on a collision course with our prospects of maintaining a hospitable planet? Is that even an achievable prospect? Miriam and then Danny. Looking to history and, and seeing how divestment, divestment has been used as a tactic in the past, yeah, the most prominent example is how it was used during the uh, anti-apartheid movement, particularly in the US, and students using their universities as, as leverage. And what history has kind of shown with divestment is that although it, it started on campuses, it's led to restrictive legislation being implemented by, for example, the federal government in the United States, and which, you know, all kind of builds power against something like the South African apartheid regime and, and kind of helping to, to break the back of that, that regime. So whilst the focus at the moment is on institutions like universities, like local city councils and faith organisations, the end goal is, is about building a movement, really, and, and um, changing the political narrative around the, the, this industry and, and what it's doing and kind of breaking its political stranglehold on our, on our democracy. Divestment is primarily a political tool. Um, it's about breaking the social licence of this industry, publicly stigmatising them, 
to change the way that they can influence politics and the economy and society. Even if all of our universities and our local authorities divested tomorrow, we're never going to bankrupt Shell. They're too big, they've got too much money. And so while financial mechanisms are much more important for things like reinvestment, and that can really change the shape of the money going into solutions, divestment is primarily a political tactic rather than an economic one. We're not trying to cripple these companies financially, we're trying to cripple them politically and change the huge influence they have on our political system and our society. So can divestment succeed in the battle against climate change, where the UN climate talks have failed? So I think the divestment movement has taken off you know, so spectacularly recently um, is, is for, for a couple of reasons. And um, firstly, I think it's because it, uh, it, it speaks to power. It speaks to power relationships. It's not about feeling bad about not cycling everywhere or turning your lights on. It's not, it's not about guilt. It's about, you know, sticking it to, to these big, powerful industries. I think it also works because there's a powerful financial argument and it also works because people can see that it's won and that really powerful divestment campaigns in the past, like apartheid South Africa, tobacco, Darfur, have proved that this is a really effective tactic. And I think that's even more important as we look at the kind of ineffectual UN process has been going nowhere for a very long time. And I think the divestment movement or the analysis that brought around the divestment movement has been really useful in kind of shining a light on the corporate influence that's played a role in those talks going nowhere. And obviously you're never going to get meaningful climate legislation that leaves 80% of the fossil fuel company's assets underground while the fossil fuel companies are in the room. That's just not going to happen. So I think the divestment movement has been really powerful at highlighting some of the problems there have been with that process. And I think as we look to Paris and, you know, with the lessons from Copenhagen, the climate movement is no longer expecting and pushing for this, like, amazing deal to come out of Paris. I think the narrative uh, is going to be much more about kind of getting corporate influence out of those talks so that they can be the best they can, recognising their failings and that, you know, ultimately what we're looking at from Paris is a series of kind of voluntary commitments at a country-based level, which just shows that we really need to keep up the pressure at a national level rather than an international level in many ways. Um, So I think divestment movement is really, really complementary to these international processes which are getting stuck and which need a powerful grassroots climate movement on the ground in the countries to make sure that you know we get the action that we need. What divestment is all about, it's, it's about exposing the political power of the fossil fuel industry, the influence and the stranglehold that's had over the democratic process, using power and money to, to lobby governments. So one focus for the upcoming COP in Paris is to talk about the involvement of the fossil fuel industry within those talks. I mean, sponsorship and, you know, the industry is invited to these talks, you know, has major sway. And so getting fossil fuels out of COP is going to be a really big focus for the divestment movement because it's just not okay that this industry, which has so much to lose from properly fighting climate change and tackling the issue and so, so much to gain from inaction, should have such a great amount of leverage and, and political influence within these talks. So so that's a really big focus, I think. 
there's been some really interesting conversations that have come out recently. So The Guardian has recently launched a, a campaign, the Welcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to divest from fossil fuels, which is really, really exciting. And around that, there's been a lot of really interesting stories and op-ed pieces published by The Guardian around divestment. And one of those was by George Monbiot, who spoke really interestingly about the UN talks and how, for the most part, they've, until now, they've focused on, on emissions, like carbon emissions and how we can cut emissions. So kind of the end of, of the process is, is what the, the focus has been on. But what divestment is focusing on is, is the other end of the scale. It's the reserves of fossil fuels, their extraction, and it's about keeping the fossil fuels in the ground instead of limiting how much we actually emit. So I think there's a really interesting potential there to kind of reshape the narrative around climate change within the UN climate negotiations. Who we're targeting and how we're tackling it is just focusing on emissions the best way to go about dealing with climate change or should we be focusing on the other end of um, the production line and, and uh, how much we've got and how to limit our extraction of it. So I think that's a really interesting way in which the divestment campaign has the potential to reshape the UN talks. The economics of energy are changing rapidly. This month, the International Energy Agency reported that based on provisional figures for 2014, global emissions failed to rise for the first time for decades that did not coincide with the economic recession. Geoffrey Lean, in The Telegraph, speculated that this could be due to the, quote, sudden plunge of coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel and the biggest contributor to climate change. End quote. And it is coal that the academics of Oxford University's Smith School, Department of Stranded Assets, predicted would be impacted most strongly by the divestment campaign. At the end of last year, electricity company E.ON announced it would be focusing its core business on renewable energy, and the cost of rolling out renewables continues to fall. Analysts like Carbon Tracker co-founder Jeremy Leggett are suggesting that the tide may have finally and irreversibly turned. But as Bill McKibben put it in The Guardian recently, we're still locked in a race with the physical world. The transition to a clean energy, low carbon world can't happen fast enough, so we need to keep pushing on the ground. Thanks for listening to Climate Radio's Climate Solutions mini-series. Hope you've been inspired to be part of some of the big campaigns that are helping us move towards a better future. My name is Phil England, and here's Daniel Pafford of 350.org on what the next phase of the divestment campaign is going to look like. Thanks for listening. I think the divestment campaign is going to keep on growing and growing. I think we're going to see more and more people picking up divestment in their communities, going to their local authorities. We're going to see more divestment wins. We're going to see some of the bigger players, particularly the trusts and foundations coming out and and divesting themselves. And ultimately, the pressure is on to get pensions are where the big money is. And if you analyse the kind of the waves of divestment movements past as soon as you've got the big pension funds kind of moving their assets, that's really kind of the pinnacle. So I expect that over the next 12 months, we're getting to the stage where we are going to start seeing movement from some of the big, the really big players um, in the financial system. Um, So I'm really positive about the potential for the next 12 months for divestment.